Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 103, The House of Rejoicing. Today it is our great pleasure and honour to visit the home of Pharaoh himself. After many years on the throne, Amunhotep III is building a house worthy of his majesty. We are going to Malkata, to the House of Rejoicing Palace. This episode is brought to you by Juan Salazar de Leon, and thanks for his donation. Apart from having a magnificent name, Juan Salazar de Leon funded this episode's research single-handedly. Senor Juan, muchas gracias. And per your request, a special shout-out to Aileen. Blessings upon you both. May Wep Wawet, the jackal who opens the ways, guard you and your family, and see to it that you'll make your way safely to the next life. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. Malkata is a fascinating place, but not a lot of people have heard of it. So why am I devoting a whole episode to one palace from one king? Well, let me explain. Considering how famous the pharaohs are, in general we know surprisingly little about their home life. From 3000 BCE all the way down to 1400 BCE, there is a sizable gap of information. We have tidbits here and there, but what survives is incredibly fragmentary and ephemeral. Basically, over 1600 plus years, about 64 generations or so, the pharaohs come and go, leaving very little of their practical daily life. That changes with Malkata. Malkata is the best preserved royal palace in Egypt. Period. Its architecture, its layout, its decoration, and its material remains are incredibly well attested, to the point that it's now possible to do digital reconstructions, detailed reconstructions, of the palace and its environment. As archaeological work continues year by year, Malkata becomes ever more detailed in our understanding. This is wonderful for Egyptologists, of course, but it has a public value as well. The better we understand Malkata, the more we are able to peek behind the curtain of pharaonic propaganda. We talk a lot about religion, politics, art, wars, family, characters, etc. But actual daily life, where a person walked, sat, ate, and drank, that stuff is as human as history gets. Malkata starts to give us a glimpse of that. Hopefully, more work will illuminate it even better. The reason I've chosen to dedicate a whole episode to Malkata is that I think the palace and the archaeologists working there deserve it. For one thing, 
It deserves greater spotlight than historians have given, and for another, the site is so rich in material that even this episode is just scratching the surface. Consider this an introduction to Malkata, the best preserved palace of ancient Egypt. In 1370 BCE or so, an Egyptian ship returned to the city of Thebes. It had been away many months, sailing the dark waters of the Mediterranean and Aegean seas. The ship had gone to Crete and to Greece, visiting the people called Keftiu or Minoans, and Tanayu or Mycenaeans. Now, after a long embassy, the Egyptians at last came back to their home. As it sailed up the Nile, the ship passed by the great temples of Karnak and Luxor. Those monuments were covered in scaffolding as the never-ending cycle of renovations and expansions continued. In these days of the greatest pharaoh, Amunhotep III, life in many Egyptian towns must have been a bustle of upgrading, renewing, and adding to older structures. That was most evident here at Thebes. The ship was approaching Luxor Temple when it suddenly veered to starboard. Turning west, the ship left the river and entered a wide, deep canal. This was an artificial waterway cut into the riverbank and passing through the farmland towards a site only glimpsed up until now. As the ship entered the canal, it soon found itself approaching a most unexpected site, a lake. On the west bank of Thebes, directly opposite the temples of Luxor and Karnak, an artificial harbour cut into the farmland. Commissioned by Amunhotep III, this harbour was a massive area, 2.4 kilometres long, 1.2 wide. That's 1.5 by 0.75 miles. The lake was dug deep into the soil and cut away a huge swathe of ground. Thousands of workers had laboured on it under the orders of their pharaoh, performing one of the great construction feats of the day. With adzes and hoes, they scooped mud out by the basketful, moving many tons of soil in order to reshape the landscape and form a new harbour for the city. This harbour, which we call Birket Habu, is a magnificent testimony to ancient engineering and the mighty deeds of Egyptians as a people. As the ship turned into the canal, it was greeted with the sight of this massive harbour which stretched from north to south. The waters, placid and sheltered from the river current, were filled with ships. You see, in the days of Amunhotep III, vessels came to Egypt from many places. They appear in tomb paintings of the day, and from those paintings we can get a sense of the activity that once filled Birket Habu and other Theban harbours. I will explore that properly next episode, but suffice to say, the palace of Amunhotep III was not just a home, but a bustling centre of economic activity, both international and local. Finally, the ambassador's ship got its chance, and they moored at the water's edge, where they could disembark. The ambassadors made their way down the gangplank, glad to, at last, have firm ground beneath their feet once more. Thick mud clung to their sandals and dirtied their robes, but they didn't care. How good it was to be back in Egypt. The ambassadors hurried up the bank, heading west. Ahead of them, a towering wall stretched from north to south. It was made of mud bricks, probably the same mud that was scooped out of the Birket Habu and marked the boundary between a world of commerce and a more secluded space. 
Behind this wall, the pharaoh's palace was waiting. It's time to go inside. The ambassadors approached the wall, passed through the gateway, and came to the palace of the pharaoh. This was called Perhai, the House of Rejoicing, but its full name was Per Aa Iten Chechen, the Palace of the Dazzling Aten. This was a grandiose name indeed. The Aten is the sun disk which shines up above and is an old form of the solar god Ray. Aten was gaining popularity in the 18th dynasty, particularly in the days of Amunhotep III and his father Thutmose IV. For about 40 years, Aten had become more common in royal iconography. Now, Amunhotep was using the idea to refer to himself. It's extravagant. The palace of Amunhotep, the palace of Aten, is a sprawling complex of courts, apartments, ceremonial spaces, servants' quarters, and outbuildings. In total, the palace covers approximately 7,700 square metres, that's 83,000 square feet. It is a massive area, or at least it would become massive. The whole complex developed over the course of about 10 years. There were renovations, expansions and additions, as the pharaoh demanded more from his workers. We'll explore these developments in time, but for now, let's focus on the main palace, which you could have visited in year 30. Just to orient ourselves a bit, the main palace of the king, the original structure, was a long rectangular building with dozens of rooms within it. It was about 120 meters long and 60 meters wide approximately, and it had a wall going around the outside. The building was oriented roughly east to west, though with a slight angle towards the north. This kept it sheltered from the prevailing winds, and ensured that the lifestyle inside was breezy and comfortable, but not too open to the elements. The palace is well laid out, and if you look to the website, you'll see some elaborate and detailed descriptions of the internal structure. Suffice to say, this is a complex but fascinating area. When the ambassadors arrived at Malkata, they would have been ushered from the harbour side up to the public entrance. This was a narrow passageway on the northeastern side of the building, and it led into a grand hall. Inside, there was a semi-public space, probably used for gatherings at festivals and state occasions. But there's not much to see here, and the business is with Pharaoh. So, let's head inside the palace proper. To begin with, the palace was oriented around a central hallway. A long room with two rows of columns formed the heart of the building, and everything else radiated out from there. In that central space, you would probably have found A, people like concubines working on domestic arts and crafts, or B, the king and his family relaxing, or C, everyone coming together for meals. You know, it's a hall. They are multi-purpose. The hall was decorated in beautiful colours. The floor was white, with patterns of papyrus plants, birds, rushes, and colourful rosettes. Images of nature to inspire comfort and a sense of leisure in the home. To either side, bright red columns supported the roof, which was quite interesting. The roof was constructed, perhaps, in two levels. Around the perimeter of the hall, there was one layer, but in the middle, the roof suddenly rose higher to provide a sort of vault. 
This second level was lined with windows, clerestories, which allowed light and cool air to flow down into the hall, refreshing and comfortable for the inhabitants. Overall, this central hall, despite its seclusion in the centre of the complex, was still probably a brightly lit and cool space, perfect for social gatherings and daily business. To either side of this hall, there seemed to have been a series of apartments. These are most likely the apartments of the royal women. Eight two-room structures run along either side of the hall in groups of four. They're pretty much identical, and they all feature a curious setup. To begin with, you would enter the apartment from the grand hall, and come into a small vestibule. There, a square bath awaited you. Presumably, the idea was to wash yourself, or at least your feet, purifying your body ahead of entering the domestic space. Imagine taking your shoes off at the door, but then quickly washing them in a small tub. Something like that. After the bathroom slash vestibule, you entered the apartment itself. This was a cramped space, a square living room or lounge, probably decorated with some beautiful chairs and textiles, and in the back, a small cloister or bedroom for sleeping. The effect is something like a studio apartment, with the most basic of amenities. But it's not all bad. The decoration in these spaces was lush. The walls were green with painted vines, and splashes of purple showed grapes hanging in their arbours. Flying birds flitted among the leaves, and the overall idea seems to be something like sitting in a garden. With more windows letting in light from the roof, the apartments may have been small, but they were probably quite comfortable. These eight apartments radiating off the main hall might be the living quarters of the royal harem, the wives, concubines, and hangers-on of the pharaoh. I have to stress, though, that is just one interpretation. As we have seen previously, back in episode 88, the harem is probably a misunderstood institution in Egypt, in the sense that we really don't know much about it at all. These apartments could be for a variety of people or purposes. There's still debate, and more excavation might give us the answer. Personally, I suspect they are meant for royal women, or at least important members of the extended royal family. That's just my hunch, but I suspect that's the correct answer. As the ambassadors passed through this hallway, going past the apartments, they might have seen high-ranking officials or royal women at work. They may even have caught a glimpse of Sit Amun, the daughter and wife of the king. Now in her late twenties, Sit Amun was a high-ranking member of the family, with her own estates and wealth to manage. If they saw her, the ambassadors may also have seen the man named Amunhotep, son of Hapu. The royal scribe par excellence, Amunhotep Hapu, was also a manager for Sit Amun's estates. More on that relationship another time. Moving on from the central hall, the ambassadors at last arrived at the throne room, where the pharaoh sat to receive his guests. This hall was simple an open space with a set of columns in the centre. Against the rear wall, the king's throne was a magnificent sight. It has been reconstructed today. Words can't really do this thing justice, but I'll do my best. As always, pictures are on the website. The throne of Amunhotep III began with a canopy on top of a plinth. 
The throne itself was raised off the ground by a square podium with a small ramp leading up. On the floor of this ramp, painted images of foreigners lay prostrate and bound beneath the pharaoh's sandals. Around the base, kneeling captives represented the military power of the king, the extent of his rule, and the supremacy of his people. These prisoners, bound and trod upon, are a pretty confronting set of images. Anyone coming before the king got the message loud and clear. The throne itself was wood, covered in gold. The legs were shaped like lion's paws, the sides were golden discs. The inner back would have had an image of some sort, maybe the king in battle as a sphinx, or smiting his enemies as a human. We've seen images like these on the throne of Amunhotep's father, Tutmos IV, which survives to this day. Alternatively, the throne back might also have shown the pharaoh at his rest or leisure, like the chairs of Amunhotep's daughter, Sit Amun, and his grandson, Tutankhamun, which also survive. We don't have an image of Amunhotep's throne, unfortunately, but based on these composite ideas, we can get a sense of how it might have looked. Again, images on the website. The pharaoh himself sat dressed in a long white kilt of the best quality linen. His skin was a deep red-brown, golden jewellery shone upon him like the glitter of sunlight. On his head he wore a crown, a helmet-shaped edifice in deep blue, covered in discs. This was the blue crown, often mislabeled as the war crown. It was an 18th dynasty innovation, which I will explore another time. Suffice to say, the pharaoh was an image of wealth and splendour, seated beneath a canopy of beautiful craftsmanship. The ambassadors bowed low before their pharaoh, and, at his request, began to report on their embassy to the Aegean. We know how that went, so we will leave the ambassadors here and look around the rest of the complex. It's been nice travelling with them, but there is more to see. We've visited halls and apartments and seen the throne room. Now, let's get to the good stuff. Let's see where the pharaoh himself lived. The innermost apartments of Malkata are a surprisingly small affair, considering who lived here. Basically, the king's chambers consist of a throne room for private audiences, a spa room with a bath, a small seating room or lounge, and a bedroom, closed off in a corner. That's it. Pretty tiny for a ruler whose power stretched from heaven to earth and horizon to horizon. Within the small chambers which marked his earthly home, the pharaoh of Egypt lived in probably opulent comfort. Gilded chairs, top quality textiles, the very best food and drink. Amunhotep had them all, and he did this within spaces that were richly decorated. Now only a few traces of the apartment's decoration survive, but they do show that the king probably went to bed, sleeping beneath a ceiling decorated with vultures. A series of vulture birds, eight of them in total, spread their wings protectively over the king's bed. The vultures are symbols of Mut, mother goddess of Thebes, and they bear the hieroglyphs Necher Nefer Nebtawi Neb Ma'at Imenhetep Di Ankh Jet. This translates to the young god, lord of the two lands, Neb Ma'at Amunhotep, given life forever. When he lay down to bed, the king could sleep comfortably, assured of his mother's eternal protection. Incidentally, there's a wonderful subtext to these vultures. 
They represent Moot, mother goddess of Thebes, in her heavenly form. But they could also represent the protection of Amunhotep's now deceased mother, Moot M. Weir. Moot M. Weir, or Moot in her bark, died just a few years before work started at Malkata. I like to imagine that Amunhotep chose the vulture decoration both for religious purposes and as a reminder that his mother was watching over him always. Behind the apartments, a large series of halls and rooms filled out the rest of the palace. These are an unknown purpose, perhaps storage rooms. It's been suggested that they might have been part of the royal treasury, and they may have housed a grand collection of memorabilia, antiquities, and ceremonial objects related to the king's household. The crowns and insignia of rule might be kept back here, or the weapons and chariots of Egypt's top warlord, or perhaps the jewellery, gold and silver, which flowed into Pharaoh's state treasuries, came here as well. We're not certain, no significant objects have been found in these spaces, but when we look at the ones found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, Amunhotep's grandson, we do see many objects like couches, baskets, jewellery, makeup kits, and fans, domestic items that could easily have been kept in the back rooms of a pharaoh's fabulous palace. For my money, that's as good a guess as any at the moment. After all, what treasury would be more secure than one kept at the most heavily guarded institution in the land? At the very back of the royal palace, behind the king's apartments themselves? That is a solid choice to keep your gold. The palace of Malkata was a grand affair, with a vast array of apartments, halls and spaces within its walls. We've only scratched the surface, but even this little peak should give us a sense that the space was lavish, brightly lit, and ornately decorated. It was also full of people. The king, his queens, his children, his officials, and his servants bustled about the space daily, making the palace one of the hotbeds of employment and economic activity within the land. Outside the main walls, the harbour called Burkett Habu also saw a steady stream of foreign vessels which brought diplomacy and trade, and Egyptian ships brought supplies, all collected here for the House of Rejoicing. So Malkata was huge, ornate, and splendid. But how much did it actually serve as the king's home? As I mentioned earlier, Malkata was designed and built initially as a place to host the said festival, the king's jubilee after 30 years in power. But the said festival was a limited time affair, taking a few months out of 1370, and then only being repeated every three years or so. Between the occasions of the said festival, how much did Amunhotep actually live at Malkata? Based on evidence that I'll explore in future episodes, it does seem that the king slowly began to spend more and more time at Malkata after his first jubilee. At first, he was probably there for a few months or so out of every year. Like most Egyptian kings, Amunhotep might have moved between different palaces at different times. Sometimes he would be at Thebes, others at the Fayum, and sometimes he was at Memphis, close to the Mediterranean and the distant provinces of the Egyptian Empire. As far as scholars can tell, it's quite likely that most ancient Egyptian kings moved from palace to palace according to the time 
and to their needs. So Amunhotep spent some of his time at Malkata every year. As time wore on, he began to leave this palace less and less often. When he did choose to leave Malkata, Amunhotep travelled in the grandest style of all. From a couple of scattered texts, we have an idea of how the king might have arrived and departed Malkata, and how he moved up and down the Nile. He travelled on a ship, of course, a gargantuan ship, a ship that may have been decorated in gold. When Amunhotep III travelled, he did so in the ancient equivalent of a superyacht. The king travelled on a ship called Aten Chechen, aka the Dazzling Aten. This was probably made of cedar wood imported from Lebanon, and if it was anything like the ships of Hatshepsut or Tutmos IV, it could have been as long as 15 metres, or 51 feet. Its sails would have been brightly coloured, and its hull perhaps was painted in images of protective deities or emblems. We get a sense of this from model ships found in Egyptian tombs dating to this time. The ship itself has never been found, but it's referenced on some of the scarabs which Amunhotep commissioned earlier in his reign. So Amunhotep would have left his palace and his artificial lake aboard a sumptuous, grandiose ship. When he and Queen T sailed forth, they did so knowing that their household was the most splendid ever seen in Egypt. From the glitter of their palaces to the majesty of their monuments, from the power of their name to the international fame of their people, they were a royal couple outshining any that had come before. As they sailed out of the harbour, their beautiful home, the House of Rejoicing, gleamed in the light of the Aten. It was, truly, a paradise on earth. We have visited Malkata for the first time, but certainly not the last. Now that Regnal Year 30, 1370 BCE is ending, the story of this palace has completed its first phase, but there will be more, at least two more. You see, the king commissioned this palace for the first said festival, but for the next two, he began to add new structures and complexes to the palace. Over the next six years, Malkata would continue to grow and expand, and its story would become richer and more intriguing. We will revisit the palace at the appropriate times. For now, it is time to turn our attention back to Egypt as a whole. We've spent the past six episodes immersed in royal concerns. The said festival, the royal children, the elite servant Amunhotep Hapu, private religion, and the grand embassy to the Aegean. Now it's time to explore some of Egyptian society again, to examine daily life among ordinary folks. In episode 104, we will survey the cities and homes of Egypt during the reign of Amunhotep III. Now that time is marching on, we have more evidence for these things, both archaeological and written, and we can start to visit ordinary Egyptians more and more. I'm pleased to begin a new series, Daily Life in New Kingdom Egypt, with episode 104, the first of many on this topic. I'll see you soon for that episode. But first, stick around for the epilogue, in which we explore a surprising aspect of Malkata and its decoration. 
You see, surviving fragments suggest that once upon a time, parts of the palace were decorated in the artistic style of the Greeks. Mycenaean artwork from Malkata in the epilogue. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places: Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana, but of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We spent the past two episodes exploring the Aegean Sea as Egyptians travelled to Crete and Greece, visiting foreign peoples. They took valuable items with them, symbolic pieces of art and trade goods. And by doing this, the Egyptians extended the knowledge of their culture, the fame of their ruler, and the opportunities for diplomatic or economic relationships in the future. Well, those relations had their influences back in Egypt as well. If we visited Malkata around 1370 or so, we might have seen artists painting the elaborate scenes which decorated many of the walls and ceilings. Most of the images they made were classic Egyptian: gardens, pools, wildlife, and leisure. But they also painted a small set of artworks that were decidedly exotic in their style. Part of the Malkata Palace, it seems, was decorated in a manner influenced by the Mycenaeans. Way back in episode sixty-nine, North by Northwest, we learned about the Minoan artists who might have lived in the northern delta of Egypt. These artists, whoever they were, helped decorate much of the palace at Tel El Daba, aka Avaris, aka Peru Nefer, the port city which connected the Nile to the Mediterranean. At Peru Nefer, large administrative buildings were decorated in features that you would also find at Knossos. And archaeologists working there have wondered if the city may have housed a colony of Minoan or Keftiu artists. Well, now it seems there were some Mycenaean artists living at Thebes. Sometime in Amenhotep III's final decade of power, around 1370 BCE or a bit later, artists working in the Mycenaean tradition were used to decorate parts of the Malkata Palace. We can see this in some striking and colourful frescoes, which survive in fragments today. Once upon a time, these frescoes decorated part of the ceiling. Now they're quite broken, but they've been reconstructed, and what they reveal is gorgeous. The Mycenaean frescoes have a background of diamond shapes and spirals. 
The diamonds are twisted, almost like a kite that's bent in the breeze, and the spirals wrap around tiny flowers or rosettes, which bloom at the corner of each diamond. The diamonds themselves are painted in rows of blue and orange. In the center of each one, we see the head of a bull staring face first out of the painting. This is an unusual look. We don't often see front-facing animals in Egyptian art. On top of their heads, the bulls wear rosettes like a crown, holding them between their horns. Put together, the diamonds, spirals, rosettes, and bulls make a charming pattern, colorful and lively, which would probably catch your eye and make for good conversation, or at least something to distract you when you are bored. The bull diamond frescoes were discovered within the king's apartments, quote unquote, at the main palace of Malkata. They were in the antechamber just next to the pharaoh's bedroom, and they may have been part of a sitting room that the king used with family or favored guests. In that room, a decoration like this would have had two effects. Firstly, it would give visitors a taste of the wider world, a world which realistically was beyond the reach of most people. Simultaneously, these images would have impressed on visitors just how influential the pharaoh was. Here, in the antechamber of the king's apartment, there were decorations from the furthest reaches of the earth. Sitting in this room, one might get a sense that they were literally at the center of the world. The Mycenaean frescoes are beautiful, but they have their own heritage as well. A piece of art from Mycenae itself is nearly identical to this fresco. It is a sculpture of a bull's head made in silver with golden horns. What's wonderful about it is that it wears a rosette or flower in gold upon its forehead, almost identical to the ones that we see at Malkata. This might have been a motif that was popular around 1370 BCE, but it turns out the legacy still goes further back. The Mycenaeans probably picked up this idea of bull's heads from the Minoans or Keftiu. Bull's head rhytons or drinking vessels were quite common in Crete around 1500 BCE, and we even see one of these in an Egyptian tomb painting. In the tomb of Rek Mire, whom we met back in episode 69, a pile of Minoan treasures includes the distinctive profile of a bull's head vessel. So this was apparently a popular piece. The elites of Egypt seem to have appreciated its beauty, or at least its exotic value. When Amunhotep III, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, had guests in his antechamber, or when his wives and children came in, they could look to the ceiling and see evidence for the king's universal power. Across thousands of kilometers, the pharaoh's name carried weight enough to pull foreign artists all the way to his home. With great skill, such artists decorated the king's palace and immortalized a bond between two celebrated cultures.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.